I'm Agnes Frimston. And I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, Ben. Hello, Agnes. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you you back in our uh, cave at the back of Chatham House. Yeah. I'm great. Yeah. How have you been? Yeah. Good. Got an absolute cracker of an interview this time. We've got a good interview. We're leading with the interview. All right. Bold. Bold. (laughs) Sorry. No, let's talk more about it. I don't want to talk more about that. I want to talk about the interview. So (laughs) I'm just excited about it. (laughs) Okay. Fair. So tell me about this interview. So we were lucky enough to speak to Ronan Farrow, mm. who is an American journalist. He's a lawyer and a former government advisor. He advised Hillary Clinton. And he has just won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting in The New Yorker, um, which helped to uncover the Harvey Weinstein sexual abuse allegations. I think they've shared it with The New York Times as well or Jody Cantor and Megan Twerry's reporting. Anyway, mm-hmm. but we spoke to him about his new book. Mm. What's the book on? Is it on the scandal? No, it's mm-hmm. not. It's called War on Peace, The End of Diplomacy and the Decline of American Influence. Wow. And it's basically, it's published by, sorry, and published by William Collins. And in it, he has spoken to every living Secretary of State who have all been quite open with him and a lot of people from inside the State Department and across government basically about how successive governments have cut funding to the State Department and how American diplomacy is suffering as a result. Mm. Interesting. And that's going to be part of the world today's new issue? Yes, it is. Yep. Uh, so the a longer version of this interview will be in print in the upcoming issue of the world today june july which also has cover stories on russia as in the russian elections or different things so we've got a piece by alex nice who is an economist on the impact of sanctions mm-hmm. what's actually happening there and we've got a um, a lead piece on perceptions of putin mm. and sort of what's next for putin does he have any options does he have to stay there you mm. know Obviously, we always look at it as him desperately wanting to keep hold of power. But the other side is that maybe he doesn't have a choice. Interesting. Maybe that's uh, fodder for future episodes. (laughs) Potentially. Not that I would ever want to describe any of your authors as fodder. I (laughs) I regret that. But before I put my foot in my mouth anymore, let's listen to this interview with Ronan Farrow. And where did you interview Ronan? We interviewed him in a lovely hotel in Soho, which slightly explains some of the background noise. So apologies for anything that's unclear because of that. Yes. Um, blame the editor, me, but also blame... Nonsense. ...the location. Yeah. It was, it was a, yeah, it was a lovely, lovely surroundings, but um, somewhat noisy conference going outside. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yes. But uh, we hope you enjoy the interview anyway. Uh, so let's have a listen. So obviously, War and Peace is all about diplomacy and the changing nature of diplomacy. Why do you think we still need diplomats? It's very apparent in conflicts around the world, in confrontations that loom from North Korea to Iran, that now more than ever we need the painstaking research and historical knowledge and 
context of mistakes that have been made before mm -hmm. uh, to guide us through the pitfalls. We need the men and women who screen dangerous individuals from entering the United States um, for the sake of not only the U.S. but all its allies. We need the high-level work of brokering political settlements that can keep service men and women out of the line of fire. And, you know, at, in every corner of the world, if we want to maintain any kind of authority and influence, uh, we need to be investing in those men and women who make those deals because China is nipping at our heels and filling that space. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole variety of reasons why I think diplomacy is more indispensable now than ever, perhaps. But also quite in danger. <laughs> it's very much in danger at the moment. I thought it was so interesting that you, because I think it's quite fashionable at the moment to look at, especially in the State Department, the decline in the light of Trump. But actually your argument that really all of this sort of begins from Clinton. You know, I think that it's even earlier in one sense because there has always been a strain of nationalism and mm -hmm. isolationism that's been exploited for political gain against the work of diplomats. And I talk about how in early American history there were politicians who would, uh, you know, say that they'd come back from foreign courts, diplomats would, you know, with the plague, <laughs> they'd be like, uh, you know, cholera carriers that have to be quarantined uh, because of suspicion of their foreign values. And uh, there's a little bit of that in the current assault on diplomacy under the Trump administration, mm. you know, that uh, there's rhetoric on the campaign trail denigrating these men and women as dusty bureaucrats who don't get anything done. Yeah. And while indeed we need reform in the State Department, and it is a slow-moving bureaucracy uh, that could be better equipped than it currently is mm. to meet the challenges of the day. History shows us that every time we slash and burn diplomacy and development, it has a really deleterious effect for America's standing around the world. Yeah. You mentioned the Clinton administration. Mm. Right after the Cold War, uh, Clinton came in on this campaign mantra of it's the economy stupid mm -hmm. and a refocusing on domestic issues. Yeah. And we ended up uh, slashing away 30% of our diplomacy and development spending, closing a bunch of embassies, mm -hmm. underfunding the embassies that were left standing, closing two government agencies and folding them back into the State Department, really diminishing their expertise and their mandate. And those were focused on arms control and information warfare. You know, these are important skill sets mm. as we face down North Korea and ISIS. And uh, the diminishing of those areas of expertise really hurt us after 9-11. Mm. We're repeating the same mistakes now. Yeah, it's really... It's really interesting how cyclical all of these things often are, isn't it? I thought, I mean, diplomacy... Well, Henry Kissinger makes that interesting point in the book about how every administration comes in and thinks they can try something new and we're sort of becoming ahistorical as a culture. Yeah. Also, I could only hear that in Kissinger's voice. Yeah, as well. exactly. Phenomenal. <laughs> um, I mean, because diplomacy's always been quite a sort of shadowy world. You know, it is faceless civil servants, that's the point, often. I mean, do you think, like, as public pressure for sort yeah. of accountability and transparency increases, do you think that's going to become more difficult? You know, I talk about the kind of decline of the celebrity diplomat, mm. how at one point you had people like the wise men after World War II mm. who had a certain profile. You had people like Richard Holbrook, who obviously is you know, sort of a, a thread through much of the book, mm -hmm. my relationship with him. and. These were individuals who used their 
public profile as part of their negotiating skill set. Uh, and there was space on the world stage for a larger-than-life diplomat. Mm. And it's unclear whether that's the case. You know, John Kerry's on the record in this book saying, you know, why is it that we don't have star diplomats anymore? You know, is it just that we don't acknowledge diplomacy in the way we once did? Mm. Well, I think there must be an element of sort of post-9-11, the militarization of, you know, discussions. And I thought your point in the book about it's not just about when we bring the military to the table, it's also, it changes the nature of who the other side brings. Yes. And that must have changed the high profile element of, you know, diplomats. There's less and less space mm. for civilian leadership in foreign policy. Yeah. And the United States and its allies run around decrying the threat of military juntas around the world. And trying to stand up for civilian leadership mm. in places like you know, Pakistan, for instance. And yet we have become a nation that so often does business directly general to general yeah. or spy to spy. Obviously, we're speaking a couple of days after Iran. And I think the really interesting thing about the Iran deal is obviously that it sort of typifies the flawed nature of a lot of diplomatic agreements. Like nobody thought it was perfect, but the idea was that it was much better than the other option. But I think what, what Trump's done really illustrate the interference of domestic politics on, on foreign policy. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is his America first idea, like ideas. It isn't really about the broader, broader sense, which is why it's such a shame. Very often, I think this uh, sidelining of diplomats and peacemakers and negotiators flows from uh, kind of craven domestic politics mm -hmm. that uh, it's low-hanging fruit mm -hmm. to criticize public servants, yeah. um, particularly non-military public servants. Yeah. And the mythology and iconography of military heroism is very ingrained in our culture, but uh, there is less of an understanding of the uh, exact mechanics of what diplomats do mm -hmm. and how important it is to protecting and saving American lives. Yeah. And so it's easy for politicians to hit the campaign trail and say, this tiny sliver of spending, this, you know, 1% of the budget annually mm. uh, is what should go, which is, of course, absurd in fiscal terms. It's a complete canard. Mm. But, uh, you know, it's a message that individuals from both parties, but especially of late the Republican Party, um, feel you know, can be weaponized mm. during campaigns. And I think it's also, and this, this goes across, cuts across most of the world at the moment, we've especially seen it here in Britain around Brexit. It is this mistrust of experts that is yes. increasingly gaining in, in sort of, pop, you know, I mean, do you think that's had a big impact on, on what's going on in the State Department now? Huge, you look at what happened under Rex Tillerson, and what you see is this disregard for expertise, mm -hmm. this really callous uh, willingness to purge out the career experts who have the decades of experience that yeah. could guide us through some of these crises. And I wanted to ask you about the impact of technology on diplomacy, because there's a really great quote from Palmerston when the telegram came in, and he said, oh my God, this is going to be the end of diplomacy. And I think we've always had, and you know, the telephone had a massive impact. Yeah. Like, do you think modern technology has changed the way that diplomacy works? I talk about this in War on Peace. Uh, there is no doubt that you know, the rise of email, mm. uh, the advent of constant instant communication mm. and global connectivity has 
made the work of the ambassador less magical and mm -hmm. special. Uh, we no longer need the basic function of having someone to deliver, you know, a, a message on heavy cardstock with mm. a with a wax seal on it. Uh, that said, there is no way in which technological change has supplanted or eclipsed the need for careful negotiation mm -hmm. on sensitive issues, um, or the need for a core of experts who, as I said, really know the pressure points and mm. what to do and what not to do, yeah. and who exert an influence within the policy process that refocuses uh, a government like the United States on long-term strategy, not mm. just short-term tactics. Yeah. It's a different perspective from military leadership. Yeah, absolutely. And one which should be valued separately, yeah. but anyway. Um, so this is a tricky one, but I think what's really interesting about the whole sort of Trump phenomenon is we've looked, leaders around the world have tried to do the classic schmoozing thing. Macron's done it. Boris Johnson even went on Fox and Friends last weekend. And it's not working, basically. He can't, you know, the classic sort of ways of interacting are not working with Trump. If you were a foreign leader, how would you deal with him? What would be your strategy? There's a White House official in War on Peace, um, I should say a White House source, <laughs> uh, because there's a lot of categories of White House sources <laughs> yeah. who speak in this book, and I should be careful about distinguishing them all, uh, who sort of gives an unflattering portrayal of how uh, General Mattis deals with Donald Trump, saying, you know, uh, you win so much, Mr. President, you're so perfect, Mr. President, mm. you know, everything you say is right, Mr. President, but also here's an alternative perspective. Uh, clearly, this is not an administration in which people last very long, uh, and clearly there are complicated issues to navigate just in managing this particular president's ego. You know, that quote was given to me in the context of someone saying that, you know, in their view, having watched communications between Rex Tillerson and President Trump, uh, there wasn't that same ability to suck up mm. and coddle. And, uh, you know, I imagine that foreign leaders face similar challenges. You look at, um, you know, Macron soldiering on through Trump doing these power plays of the picking fake dandruff off oh. his shoulder and um, you know, all the weird <laughs> body language mm -hmm. and sort of bromance at one moment and then also trying to keep him on the wrong foot at another. Mm -hmm. So I think that there are considerable challenges yeah. in dealing with this particular president and I don't know that anyone has cracked the code in terms mm. of what it means to build successful rapport with him. Yeah, they're all trying though, bless them. Not Angela Merkel. That's true, I mean, dream boat. Lady has given <laughs> up and Sorry. fair enough, oh yeah. completely, I agree with you, she is She's... Uh, fascinating and indeed dreamy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you one quick question about Schneiderman because I sure. think it's so interesting that that resignation took three hours and in the context of the Me Too movement and you know obviously all of your work on that, um, do you think that has had an impact on politics? Because, you know, Trump obviously won. Schwarzenegger had his own problems and still won as governor. Do you think they would win now? Do you think this is proof of, like, change? There's absolutely change happening, mm. and I think that's predominantly attributable to 
brave women and now men who have said enough is enough mm. and insisted on breaking through the veil of silence that has for so long um, laid over stories of this type. Mm -hmm. I also think there are changes in the media landscape. Years ago, you could simply commandeer a few magazine covers and one or two broadcasts, and you could do that through a powerful publicist, and you owned the narrative. And mm. you know, people like Bill Cosby used that to great effect for years and years. So much so that when I was covering the Cosby allegations, even simply pushing to ask a question about the fact that these stories were out there was verboten, and people clutched their pearls and mm -hmm. said it wasn't news and it was too salacious to ask about. Uh, so we've come a long way in terms of the media landscape. Uh, there are now more platforms than ever. Mm -hmm. There's uh, more women in power in media, and I think that's made a material difference. You know, it's harder to maintain a stranglehold on the narrative. Mm -hmm. And all of this has conspired, I think, to create a universe in which these stories do matter, including politically. Yeah. I hope so. I hope so too. <laughs> so, last question for you, because thank you so much. You've given us so much of your time. No, of course, however long you need. <clears throat> Is there anything that you left out or that you wish with all this sort of, that's the problem with doing something like this, everything changes so quickly. Is there something that you would have done slightly differently or added in or, yeah? That's, I, I'm so glad you asked that question. No one has asked that on the entire yes. book tour. Uh, Originality. <laughs> anytime you have a project like this, uh, there's massive reams of material yeah. that uh, don't make it into the final mm. cut. And it was very important to me that War on Peace be a snappy read. Yeah. Uh, I, in the final pass of editing this, cut out everything that could possibly go. Uh, one of the casualties of that was an entire chapter on the Philippines. Uh, individuals who uh, felt that they could set up an interview with Duterte, wow. which I think would be a fascinating conversation. Yeah. And Partly, I felt that you know the narrative didn't need an extra beat in that part of the book, and then also I just ran out of time. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but uh, that may be something I return to. Yeah, I mean that's a whole book in itself, to be honest. It is. For what sure. he's up to, yeah, and how popular he remains, and yeah, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you so much. That's really kind yeah, of you. Thank you. So, Ben, what do you think? I thought it was a super fascinating interview. I thought it ranged quite widely. Yeah. He's, he's a man of, of, he's got a lot of analysis at his fingertips, you know, and, and you listen to people sometimes who are talking outside of their wheelhouse a little yes. bit, but it didn't feel like that at all. And um, I thought particularly his take on the State Department is particularly interesting, I think, coming from a London context that we come from. Yeah. I mean... It always surprises me how much the US State Department is in the news, in, in contrast to how the British Foreign Office really very rarely is. And I don't know whether you have a take on why that might be. I think for British civil servants, it's sort of a failure if you make the news. Mm. But I, I agree with you, and I think it can seem quite alien um, from a British perspective, this idea that ambassadors are political appointees mm. and they're not sort of lifelong civil servants because obviously that's what we have here um and i think there are there are pros and cons to that you know it does give you a broader range of experiences maybe but um it does always seem quite odd and i guess like it's that classic sort of yes if they're politically appointed there's probably more scrutiny and accountability over mm. what they do but at the same time 
it's a more volatile position because with a changing administration, you're going to have new political appointments. Yeah. And that turnover must make it very hard to have like consistent relationships built up in well, yeah, I think in that, countries abroad, you know. Yeah, and that's what I mean. The point that he makes throughout the book is that it's very dependent on the sort of actually the lifelong civil service, you know, State Department employees who have been in Paris for 10, 20 years mm. or have spent 10 years in Afghanistan and have those contacts so that those sort of big appointees can come in and still function. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, also, we have now done eight episodes. Yeah. So, Thanks just... for sticking with us if you listened to episode one. Thank <laughs> you. Got all, the, got all the way through. <laughs> You've had yeah. the full range of our yeah. experience. <laughs> um, but I, I thought it might be quite nice to think, what are our favourite interviews? I really enjoyed the UN one in the last episode. Oh, yeah? With Tom Vies. Tom Vies, yeah. Because I'm not that interested in the UN. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying <laughs> that on okay. record. But, uh, but I thought that was fascinating. Mm. Um, and I learned a lot and he was really, he was really great. Yeah, and I think he really addressed the question of why it's the best thing that we have. Yeah. And why people should actually worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. So if you missed that one, that was in episode seven. I definitely yeah. recommend that. I go back to the to the Mafia interview. I thought that was great. It was a topic that I didn't know anything about yeah. at all. And it, you sort of see the see this sort of Godfather movies and you kind of imagine like that was a, a bygone age if it ever existed. Yeah. And then you find out, actually, Mafia are still widely active in quite pernicious ways yeah. throughout yeah, southern Italy and Calabria. And I thought that interview with um, Helen Fitzwilliam was so interesting. Yeah, second yeah. episode. And my housemate actually then. is from Reggio in Calabria. And it, she was so amazed that anyone in the UK was even covering <laughs> it as a story. But does she know? I mean, obviously she must know about it. Completely, yeah. yeah. She used to go to birthday parties with kids with from mafia it's families. And, but she says that in her hometown it just is not... A subject that is widely discussed. Really? Like, it's something that people know exists. Yeah, but you but just don't talk about it. You don't talk about it. And so to have not just the World Today article on mm. it, but also this episode was... Uh, yeah, well, Helen's great <laughs> Revelatory well. to her. Oh, I actually really enjoyed interviewing Nicole Elquadra about the LGBTQ plus rights in oh, yeah. Lebanon. Because that's, again, a topic I know so little about. Mm. I thought that was really interesting and also quite hopeful. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which we sort of yeah. try and strive for. Positivity. A, it, there was a positive story <laughs> to that, yeah. What was the favourite, your favourite one that you've done oh, so far? Well, I, I mean, continuing the positive story, I really enjoyed interviewing Robbie Yates oh, yeah. about the uh, Universal Health Coverage Initiative and also about the problem of hospitals detaining patients yeah. who can't pay their medical bills. Yeah. And it was just such a... I mean, again, it was a surprising thing. I mean, you don't think of it happening no. that, say, a, a, a pregnant woman who has, is rushed to hospital has a cesarean section and then is not allowed to leave. For two years. And that's a choice something. between life-saving surgery <clears throat> and being having your, your freedom of movement yeah. taken away. And but what and so it was quite a bleak interview. But what I really loved was that Rob had a solution. I know. I was just about to say ban it. <laughs> it's like also this idea that he's <laughs> like you know there's quite practice. there's quite a lot of you know really complex issues in public health policy and things are really complicated. But this one is so easy. Just ban it. Just ban it. <laughs> and, um, and I thought that was great. It was just so nice to have to have a problem that that really 
yeah, it, it was a problem that could be worked on and it felt like from his take that change is happening. Yeah. And that's, it's great to hear. So. And like proof of yeah. case studies where that has worked. Yeah. <laughs> Just exactly. banning it has worked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So please, if anyone missed those episodes, go back and have a listen because they're really, really worth having a, yeah. having a listen on. And we've got some exciting things coming up, haven't we? We do. So next episode, we've got an interview with uh, Sir David Omond, mm -hmm. who used to run GCHQ. Really big guy. Given all the current news going on about data and surveillance and people's rights to privacy, mm -hmm. I feel like might be quite a, an interesting piece of work, which is um, it's drawing on an article that he's written for the Chatham House Cyber Policy Journal, mm -hmm. which is pretty exciting because we've not featured them before no. on the podcast. So, no, we haven't. Yeah. And we're doing a live podcast from the London Conference that in true. June. In June. <gasps> Agnes, what is the London Conference? A big question. A big question. The London Conference is one of Chatham House's special events. That's the official term. It's the flagship event in the it year, is isn't it? It is one of the flagship, yeah. It's the flagship well, conference. Yeah. So it happens in June in the St Pancras Hotel. And the lineup's really interesting. And yeah. What's, what are we going to be doing the podcast on, then? Well, we're going to be having a sort of roundtable discussion with, hopefully, some very exciting speakers mm -hmm. contributing, both from Chatham House and outside. And we're basically going to be sort of toying with this idea of changing ways that politicians can engage with their publics and trying to work out whether this perceived disconnect between the elite and the common man is actually a thing. And if so, how can we bridge that through new media, mm -hmm. social media, what digital possibilities exist for better communication yeah. about what governments do and what policymakers do? And it should be really interesting. And we're also hopefully going to have some defenders of the old ways. The I sort of think so. Traditional media, the broadsheet, mm -hmm. the, the kind of Malcolm Tucker, thick of it style... <laughs> communication strategy which apparently is still i mean it's still very important absolutely yeah sadly peter capaldi won't be joining us no um, although but, we haven't actually invited him we could give it yeah. a go and armando iannucci actually came to the london conference last year he did he was the true the big speaker on the second day yeah and also i interviewed him for the world today last year so you can read that online if you'd like to. he's a lovely man <laughs> all right plugs over <laughs> i okay. actually made him laugh you made him laugh yeah now that and i that still have the recording of the it. fact that i made him laugh maybe we should add it as a sort of blooper in the <laughs> <laughs> was this we could do a little twitter poll was armando iannucci laughing out of politeness <laughs> or actually was he amused no i um, i asked him how malcolm tucker would have dealt with the brexit referendum and he laughed it's the of, way it's the way I'm i deliver sure it sort of, it's the uh, way I, it's the way i said yeah, it at i don't the time. think there's any any answer to that question that doesn't involve several expletive words that would not be appropriate for this podcast no the answer was he would not have let it happen <laughs> or anyway, tried not to. So we've got some exciting things coming up. So stick with us. So keep listening. We hope you've liked what you've heard. But that is it for this episode of Undercurrents. If you liked what you heard, please rate us or leave a review on whichever podcast app you use and subscribe to our channel, Chatham House Undercurrents. Please do get in touch if you have any questions for us or any ideas of things that you think we should cover and follow Chatham House on Twitter at Chatham House. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new exciting interviews. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston and you've been listening to Undercurrents. <laughs>